We're going to be looking together back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So the first thing I want to do is invite you to turn there. It'll be really helpful to you if you can follow along with us uh, as, as I work through this passage. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, have no fear. We have copies for you. We have provided copies at the center of each aisle, uh, up under the chairs. Uh, flag somebody down sitting on the end. Have them pass one to you. Uh, we'd love for you to take it. That can be your copy, and we'd love for you to have it and then ask us questions about what you read there. That would, that would thrill us if we could have the chance to talk to you about the Bible. Um, at the very least, it'll be helpful for you to have it in front of you this morning as we walk through this section of, of an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the founders of Christianity, to a church that he had founded himself early in his ministry. But he'd moved on from this church. He'd moved on to other parts of the ancient world. He'd been spreading the gospel, the news about Jesus from city to city to city through the Roman world. And in the meantime, his friends back at this church that he founded had begun to listen to some other voices, voices that were telling different stories about Jesus and what he means for the lives we're living now. He's writing this letter to correct his friends who'd gone off the rails in their faith and started to pursue things that just weren't consistent with who Jesus was and what Jesus did. That's what makes the letter really valuable to us because 2,000 years later, we're, if anything, more vulnerable to following false uh, impressions of who Jesus was and what he did. It could be that you came in this morning uh, assuming some things about Jesus that aren't true and that this morning will be a chance to sort of refocus or recalibrate what you think about him. This morning, our text builds to a verse that's very familiar to anybody who grew up in the church. It's the sort of verse that ends up on greeting cards or printed on some sort of ornamental plaque that you can pick up at your local Christian bookstore. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but in all seriousness, there is good reason. The verse that our text this morning builds to is so well-known. It's beautiful. It's got incredible power to bring hope and peace and freedom 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The message at the heart of Christianity is that God can rewrite the story of your life. But there are two big obstacles we got to clear this morning. Two hurdles. As we run down the track of this passage that we're going to have to jump over, if we're to connect with the encouragement and hope that this verse is meant to give us. The first of these hurdles is the fact that Paul points to becoming new in Christ. He points to a reality that is really hard for us to get our minds around. Did you notice when I quoted from First? Or 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul starts there saying that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's telling us that the key to us having this new rewritten story is being in Christ. Not with Christ. Not an admirer of Christ. Not a follower of Christ's example. But in Christ. It's what theologians have called union with Christ. It's the key to everything. But it's really hard to get our minds around, much less to feel and to enjoy and to act from this truth. It's abstract. What does it mean to be in Christ? 
That's the question I think Paul answers in the text we're going to look at today. Being in Christ is the conclusion to what Paul says before he gets to verse 17. And that's what brings us to the second hurdle we're going to have to jump over to get the message of hope and encouragement that we need to get out of this passage. The flow of thought is not straightforward and easy. The payoff in chapter 5, verse 17 is beautiful, but it comes as a conclusion from what he says in verses 11 to 16. And the way that he breaks down his ideas there is, can be tricky and hard to follow. So I, at the very top, with that trigger warning, so to speak, I want to invite you to, to dig in, hunker down with me here, and follow his thought really carefully. That's our goal for this morning. What I want to do quickly and carefully is think about what it means to be in Christ. There's a promise here that we want to lock in on and understand. If we can follow Paul's train of thought to a good understanding of what it means to be in Christ, then I want to consider the new perspective that comes when we are in Christ. What changes when we see ourselves as in Christ? So we want to look at the promise. What does it mean to be in Christ? Try to understand that from what Paul says here. And then we want to take another step into the text and ask, what perspective does this give to us? What changes for us? when we're in Christ. There's our plan for this morning. I want to begin by reading the text. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 17. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, The new has come. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to begin with the promise here, what it means to be in Christ. I mentioned earlier, verse 17, that that mentions being in Christ and being in Christ as a new creation comes at the bottom of a chain, a chain of ideas, a chain of thought. The top of the chain, verses 11 to 13, the top of the chain is a set of verses that sound a very familiar theme from this letter. It's Paul explaining why he does things differently from these other folks who have come in after him and who are now influencing his friends in Corinth. Paul's explaining to them, to these people now under the influence of what he would call false teachers, he's explaining why he does things differently than those false teachers. This is a concern all through 2 Corinthians. It's, it's, it's often under the surface And then every now and then, like in these verses, it sort of pops its head up like a turtle that's always been there that every now and then looks up and peers around over the surface of the water and then goes back down again. But it's always there. 
And when he pops his head up over the water with this theme, he says pretty much the same thing in each case. That's why we're not going to spend a lot of time on verses 11 to 13. I've talked a lot about these teachers before, and especially if you're interested in, in, in learning more about who he's talking about and why he says these things about them. If you look back at the very first sermon in this series, it's on our website. It goes into a lot of detail about who these guys were and why Paul was so worried about them. For here, I just, for, for now, for our purposes, I want to mainly just draw your attention to what he says about them in verse 12. These guys who had come in after him, who were trying to convince his friends to go a different way with their faith than what he had taught them. He describes these people as those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. That description of them is a great way to capture a lot of what he says about them in other places. These were people who were obsessed with their own status. They were in a status-obsessed city where people were climbing ladders all over, where it was possible to change your status. There was upward mobility there. There was a chance to make money. There was chances to have fame that you couldn't have in other parts of the empire. Corinth was that kind of city. So the people there were really into it. And these teachers were trying to use Jesus as a chance to climb the ladder everyone was already trying to climb anyway. And Paul's saying, no. I think we should see everything that comes after this in verses 14 to 17 as Paul explained to his friends why he's not obsessed with outward appearances like these other teachers are. He's trying to distinguish himself from them. And in verse 14, he starts to make his case. Here's what's different about me. Here's why I'm not trying to impress you the way they are. Here's why I don't want you obsessed with your status and the way that they are. Why is Paul doing things differently? Why isn't he obsessed about outward appearances, about being impressive or famous or making money? Why is he not focused on things you can see? The answer is that Paul's in Christ. And he wants others to be in Christ. Paul's not obsessed with outward appearances because he's in Christ. And he wants others to be in Christ. And verse 14 starts to explain what that means. Paul's not controlled by a love for his own reputation. He's not controlled by a quest for more money and what he might be able to buy with it. He's controlled, verse 14 says, by the love of Christ. By Christ's love for him. That's what controls how he lives his life and does his ministry. That's the truth that drives him. So what is it about the love of Christ that controls how he's doing his ministry and how he's living his life? Verse 14 tells us, and I want to break this verse and verse 15 down phrase by phrase because it's unexpected. It's a little bit jarring when you first read it, but it's the key to knowing what it means to be in Christ and to living with the kind of freedom and hope and, and possibility that comes when you are in Christ. Look what he says in verse 14. He said that the love of Christ controls us. This is what we've concluded. He says this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's not what I expected. I expected something more like one has died for all, Therefore, all live. That's definitely an idea that's in Paul. Paul says the same, that same basic thing in other places. But here, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, this one died so that all can live. He says, 
This one died for all, therefore all died. What does that mean? What's that about? That's what I want to break down here for just a minute. Hunker down here with me. Let's follow this train of thought. And in a moment, you'll see why it's so important. Let's take it phrase by phrase. In verse 14, Paul says, this is what we've concluded, that one died for all. This is, a, this is at the heart of the Christian gospel. This part is probably the most familiar out of what he says. Part of what it means to be in Christ is that Jesus died a death that I should have died, a death that was meant for me, a death that I deserved. Jesus died as a substitute, in other words, for the guilt of all those who trust in him. In his death, Jesus took on something that belonged to somebody else. That part of the gospel was promised centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth. Here's something the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53 of of that prophecy. Isaiah wrote, all we like sheep have gone astray. It's a great description of what it is to be human. We've all turned, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 14. When he says that one died for all, he's hearkening back to the truth that Isaiah prophesied. And he's saying that when Jesus died, he died under a blanket of guilt that wasn't his. That he took on willingly and took with him to the cross so that it was taken away from those who deserve to die. It's what Paul's going to say later in our own passage, down in verse 21. For our sake, chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus had none of his own, but he became sin. He took it on so that it was who he was in the moment that he died. And in his death, God punished sin. So to be in Christ partly is to have Jesus represent you. As a substitute, he gets what you deserve. You get what he deserves. There's no perfect analogy for what this means, but there are a couple that, some, that help a little bit, I think. Think of Jesus, think of union, being in Christ as, as what it means to have a good lawyer if you stand before a judge. When you stand before a judge as someone who's been accused of a crime, and a lawyer represents you before the bench of that judge, then you are going to be identified with that lawyer and that lawyer's performance. She's compelling. She's good at, at, at describing the evidence. If, she, if she's winsome with the judge or the jury, then you are good at describing the evidence. You are winsome with the judge or the jury. You are represented in what that lawyer or advocate does on your behalf think about it uh in in light of the uh, olympic sports for example there's another example we've got the lawyer that's sort of like what paul's talking about here it's also sort of like what we feel if if you're an american here this morning and you watch the americans play uh do gymnastics do you play gymnastics do you perform gymnastics i don't know what the right verb is do gymnastics uh you're represented you are sort of there they perform for you, you're caught up in what they do for Americans, and you're one of them. Sort of like that, it's also sort of unique. There's some ways in which what Paul's talking about here, what the, what the whole Bible points to, isn't reproduced anywhere else. It is unique to the story God is telling in the history of the world. 
He has entered into the world to do something no one else could do. And the promise to you, friends, is that no matter what you've done, no matter how guilty you may be, you can be set free. You can be redefined by what Jesus has done. If you will claim it in faith, then what you deserve has already been paid by Jesus. And that can happen for you this morning. There's nothing else like this. This is the heart of the gospel. One died for all who will trust him. And that's you too, if you'll have it. The next phrase, though, is where things get a little unexpected, at least for me. So one has died for all. That's the heart of the gospel. But then he says, therefore, all have died. I expect, therefore, all live. That's a biblical truth. But Paul, and, and Paul believes that, by the way. But here, he's trying to direct our attention to something else. He, wants a, he has a different emphasis here, and one that's essential to understand what it means to be in Christ. He wants to draw our eyes to another place. Yes, Jesus died for all who believe in him. He died in their place so that they don't have to die the death that they deserve to die. But when he did that, he wasn't just sort of cutting out some sort of growth that had grown up in them, like a surgeon might remove a tumor and then leave the life as it was, pretty much as it should have been, just free from that, that external thing that had attached to it. Sometimes we can think about Jesus like that. Like, like what I want from him is not really to take over my life. I want him to take away the things I don't like about my life or the things that I wish could be different about my life, the things where I know I deserve to be punished. So you just take the guilt and then I'll just be what's left over. Sometimes we can think about Jesus' work that way and it's a real bad mistake if we do. He didn't just take away some sort of growth leaving the rest of us to move on with life. He didn't just give us a clean slate, a new start that we can take as our own. That's not how it works to be in Christ. Christ only died for those who are united to him. And to be united to him means you can't stay who you are. It's not that one part of you needs to be removed. It's that all of you needs to be renewed this is the key difference. I'm gonna, I want to make, make sure this is clear. I'm going to say the same thing again. What you need and what it means to be in Christ, what you need is not one part of you to be removed. What you need is for all of you to be renewed. And only what has died can be raised. To benefit from Jesus' death, to have Christ die for you, is also to die with him. To, a die, to die to your old independent self. You can't hold on to you as you on your terms at all. And have that old self that deserved to die, die with Jesus at the same time. Death to self is the only way to share in the death of Christ. I think this is what makes the best sense out of verse 15. So in verse 15, after he said that one has died for all, therefore all have died. When Jesus died, if you want to be with him and have him die the death you deserve, then, then the old version of you, everything about you that's independent from him had to die with him. Right? That's what he said in verse 14. And that, that's what he means, I think, comes through in verse 15 even more clearly. He died for all so that those who live, the life you get to keep on living, you live no longer for yourself. 
those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see what he's saying there? That the life that moves forward is now a life in Christ. It isn't just that you died in Christ and he got what you deserved and, and, and the death you were supposed to die was died back then. It isn't just that. It's that the life that goes on is also in Christ, is also attached to him, is also set by him, is also meant for him. So, the life lived for self is over. It died with Jesus. It got what it deserved. The life that's left over is all for him. And that means... No more building up a personal brand. There's no more independent self to promote or to protect. There's no more obsession with appearances. There's no more regarding according to the flesh, to use verse 16's language, according to what we can see, to what we would be apart from Jesus. That's all now completely beside the point. That belongs to the old that has passed away. Paul, when he writes this, Paul is writing from experience. He had once lived a life that was obsessed with appearances. I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 3. This is another one of Paul's letters. In in this, this letter, he writes about what he was before he became new in Christ. What his life was about then. It reads like a CV. Listen to this. This is Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, for confidence in appearances and things you can see in the old self that's identified based on what it could do, what it had, how it was known. If anyone else has reason for confidence in the flesh, I myself have far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, a place where you could look and see with your own eyes God's identity in the world. I'm with them, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. No one could outpace Paul for commitment to obedience to what God had said. Under the law, righteousness under the law, blameless. As to zeal, you want to know how passionate he was about this old life? He was a persecutor of the church. He went around finding people who, were, who believe in Jesus and, and trying to imprison them or kill them. That's how much he believed in this life of appearances that he was living. Back then, he did judge Jesus according to the flesh. That's, what, that's the language he uses in 2 Corinthians 5. Back then, he, he did judge Jesus according to the flesh. And what he saw in Jesus, based on the appearances, what he saw was someone who was crucified. That means he was guilty. That means he was cursed. He was a fraud. He claimed to be able to save others. He couldn't even save himself. Back then, Paul judged himself based on appearances. All this list of qualifications. He judged Jesus based on appearances. Crucified, exposed, destroyed. But we regard him thus no longer, he says. Paul experienced something radically new. Now Paul sees what was behind that death that looked like failure. Now he's confident of that resurrection that promises new life. So now, Philippians 3 says, 
Now, whatever gain I had, all those old appearances that were so important to me and my sense of myself, whatever gain I had, now I count it as loss, as worse than nothing, as useless to me because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. That's what he thinks about those old appearances. In order that I may gain Christ and be found where? In him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings to become like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's Paul now. No longer obsessed with what other people can see. All that he cares about is being in Christ. He wants nothing other for his own life than what is true of Jesus' life. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that in Christ, my guilt was borne by him in his death. But it also means that my life now is attached to him in every part. It means that the old independent me has died. And the life that's left over is lived for him. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. What perspective do we gain when we are in Christ? Being being in Christ must change how you view yourself. How do you normally understand and come to know who you are? One way to know is to judge by appearances. What Paul calls according to the flesh. You know who you are based on what you can see on your CV. You know who you are based on what shows up in your Instagram timeline. Based on what your relationship status says. Based on the clothes that you wear, the cars that you drive. You know who you are based on what you can see. I am what I have. I am what I've done. I am what my peers think about me. Sometimes that could be good, make you feel good about yourself. Sometimes it can be bad. It can make you feel awful about yourself, ashamed and regretful. But either way, if you want to be in Christ, you got to give up that way of thinking. That is not who you are. You are not what people can see. And that, friends, is a tremendous challenge to us. But it's also a tremendous comfort. I want to make sure you can see how this new identity that comes when you're in Christ is a challenge to you. You need to sit with that challenge and recognize it. Take it on. Feel it. And then I want you to see how it's actually a deep and wonderful and pervasive comfort to you as well. First, the challenge, right? Let's take the medicine first. Let's take the bad news. It's bad news, but it's really, really good news. To be in Christ is to have a different understanding of what your life is for. 
Maybe earlier when I was talking about how the, what it means to, to be in Christ is to have him get what you deserve, it may have sounded to you like some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, like this perpetual option to, to not be defined by what you've done. So why not just go do whatever you want? If it sounds like some kind of past, it isn't. See, the you that gets to do whatever, that you died if you want to be in Christ. The same you that was set free from the old guilt has also put to death the independent self. The new you only exists in Christ. He died for all so that those who live live not for themselves but for him. And that means that he is implicated in everything you do. That means there is no part about your life that can be roped off from him or held back as your own. Let me, let me go a little bit deeper here. When Paul talks about being in Christ, as he does so often, comes up like 160-something times, that phrase in his letters, always talking about being in Christ. When he does, sometimes he uses some analogies that help us understand it. A couple of those analogies are really powerful for seeing this point I'm trying to make now. The challenge to being in Christ is that the independent you that gets to make choices on your own is gone. It died with Jesus, and now it doesn't exist anymore. A couple of the analogies make that point really well. One of them is, one of the analogies he gives us for what it means to be in Christ is that it's like a body. To be in Christ is to be part of his body. Christ is often described as the, the head of the body. Now, what we know about the body is that when something goes wrong in one part of the body, it isn't that just that part of the body that has a problem, right? The whole body has a problem. Threw my back out a few weeks ago. It wasn't just a problem for my back muscles that were seizing up on me. It was also a problem for my legs, for my arms, for my brain, for every part of me that hated what I was feeling in that moment, for every part of me that couldn't do what it normally would do because of what was going on in those back muscles. Had a migraine earlier this week. That wasn't just a problem for my head. That was a problem for the rest of my body that couldn't get up out of bed, for my eyes that couldn't open up and see the light because it hurt too bad. For, for all of me that was just immobilized in the bed, useless. No part of the body is independent, is it? So to be part of Christ's body means that, that you don't have one area of your life that he isn't involved in, that he doesn't have a say over, that doesn't both depend on him and isn't also obligated to him. Here's another analogy that Paul uses for what it is to be in Christ. I think this one helps us get even further. He talks about it like marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 is the most famous part where he does this. He talks about to be in Christ is a lot like what it is to be married. And when you get married, you've got to get used to the fact that you're now implicated in everything about your spouse, and they're implicated in everything about you. It doesn't happen all at once. There's not a switch that flips. It's a lesson learned the hard way from most marriages. But the independent you ends. So you no longer have a bank account and a debit card. We have a bank account and a debit card. I no longer have TV watching habits. We now have a shared TV set that we have to negotiate I no longer have a friend group. No, no, we have friend groups. I no longer have vacation time. We have vacation time. All those independent decisions I could have made on my own before are now gone. That self died. And the new one is touched in everything 
by this new shared identity. So, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that this whole relationship is set up to help us understand what it's like to be married to Jesus. The relationship between Christ and the church, what it is, in other words, to be in Christ. What it is to be in Christ is to have had an independent version of yourself die with him. That one was hung on the cross. There's no sharing in his death for your guilt. That doesn't also mean death to yourself. And what's left over is a life that, in which Jesus is implicated fully. Now the life I live is for him. That means I don't have a Twitter account. Actually, I literally don't have one, but just for the sake of argument. I don't have a Twitter account. We do. The things that I say on social media implicate Jesus. What I decide to do with that resource is a decision he has bearing on. What it means is that I don't have an outfit, how it looks, where it draws attention, how much it costs. We have an outfit. It's ours. I don't have free time. That free time is ours. I don't have Netflix or a certain internet browsing history. We do. It's ours. I don't have relationships. We do. There is no relationship in my life that I get to manage on my own how I see best. No relationship in my life in which Jesus is not also a party. One of my favorite things about our church is that we have tons of single people in our church. About half of our church, by last count, is is single. So many of you are considering dating relationships. Sometimes it's easy to consider those relationships as if you just have the freedom to, to, to make those choices on your own, right? Jesus can be thought of more as a kind of insurance policy. I'm good. I am in Christ. But now what I really want is you fill in the blank. But what Paul is telling us is that when you want to be in, if you want to be in Christ, if you want to, want to taste and benefit from what he accomplished on the cross, then it comes at the cost of any independent version of you where you get to make decisions about who you're going to invest your time in and maybe build your future with as if he weren't also there. You don't have a dating relationship. You and Jesus have one. He has a right to weigh in. He is implicated. Even more than that, he is Lord. The life that you live now, you live no longer for yourself, but for him who for your sake died and was raised. So here's a question to ask yourself, but then also maybe ask your friends to answer about you. Maybe bring this into your small group with you or, or over lunch after church. Where am I tempted to carve out an identity for myself, or at least a you know, part of my life that's separate from Jesus? Where am I tempted to rope off part of my life from what he means, what he would mean for that part of my life if I were to let him in? There's a great challenge to us 
if we want to be in Christ. It means the independent self is dead. But there's also great comfort. There is great comfort. This is something that changes when you're in Christ. It's the perspective I want to leave you with this morning. On our own, what we do is we try to build these names for ourselves. We want a reputation. We want acquisition. We want accomplishment. That's about us on our terms. We, like the teachers that Paul's writing against, we are all about outward appearances. At least that's the way we come. That's our default mode. And that's why we struggle with shame. That's why we have memories that feel like a knife in the gut when they hit us out of nowhere. That's why our relationships aren't always sincere or above board. Why we aren't always free to be vulnerable and open with one another. The message of this passage and the promise of being in Christ Well, it's a reminder that you, friends, are not a success. You are not a failure. You are not what you seem at all in the eyes of your peers, for good or ill. You are not who you were. We regard no one according to the flesh, Paul says, verse 16. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So when you get those memories that hit you like a knife in the gut, reminding of of something that you've done and can't undo, don't pretend you didn't do it. That's just a lie. There's no future for you in lies. Don't pretend it's not important, whatever it might be. But remind yourself that it is not who you are. It is who you were. It is what died with Christ. It is what got what it deserved already in Him. It is a guilt that is not yours to bear. So don't act like you haven't already died in Christ. Don't act like you aren't already raised with him. Seated with him, Paul says, in the heavenly places, in the presence of the one whose pleasure is all that matters. In Christ, this is who you are. You are pleasing to God. You are are righteous. And anything you face now in the life that's still to live in front of you, you don't face on your own. I don't have a battle for sexual purity. We have a battle for sexual purity. You can say to yourself, I don't have to face an uncertain job market. We face an uncertain job market. The promise or the the, the reality of union with Christ is that, friends, you don't get to face your future alone. 
Jesus has a say. It's his future, too. But it also means that you don't have to face your future alone. Your enemies are his enemies. Your possibilities are his possibilities. The work that needs to happen in your life is a work that he is doing in you. And that is his promise. Father, we just need faith to believe it because it's not easy to see ourselves in the light of what Jesus has done. It's abstract for one thing. It's hard to get our minds around it. But even if we could get our minds around it, it's hard to believe that it could actually be true for me. If your spirit doesn't also give us the ability to understand and to love what you've said, then not only will will it not make sense to us, we'll never be able to live from it, to take on this perspective of being in Christ as a kind of glasses that we use to bring everything else into perspective and into focus. We want that. That's what Paul's calling us to. We, We can see clearly enough he wants us living not for ourselves anymore, to be done with that way of life and to live instead for Jesus. But if you don't give us by your spirit the ability to see things in this light, we won't be able to do it. I pray that every person here right now will be able to see themselves in Christ by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.